singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. You can simply go and write a brief review on iTunes or you can make a donation. Today, the topic of uh, our episode is on uh, health and longevity. And my guest is the founder of uh, arguably one of the most popular natural health websites on the internet, at least in North America, to my understanding, for the past 15 years, actually, Dr. Joseph Mercola. Dr. Joseph Mercola has been an activist for a long time, not only for bringing nutrition into treating uh, health and achieving optimal outcomes, but also in things like uh, fighting GMO foods or uh, uh, amalgam, that's to say, uh, mercury-free dentistry. So, mm -hmm. Dr. Joseph Mercola, welcome to Singularity FM. Well, thank you for having me, Socrates. <laughs> or Nicola. <laughs> Fantastic. Excellent. So, uh, if I were to ask you to introduce yourself in your own sentence or two, what's the best way to do that? Well, I'm a physician. For first and foremost, I've seen tens of thousands of patients, and then I realized after a while I wouldn't be able to uh, affect as impact as many people as if I didn't leverage one of my other talents, which is passions, which is technology, which is, and we've been the, the most visited natural health site in the world, in the world, not just in the North America for the last 15 years. So we've had an impact. We, 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 we reach about 15 million unique visitors every month. So we're able to really help people understand the truth about health and avoid some of the challenges that conventional medicine provides. Yeah, as part of my research on you for the last couple of days, I've been looking and seeing that you have almost 300,000 subscribers on your YouTube channel and a couple of million people on Facebook and, you know, maybe 300,000 or 150 or 200,000 on Instagram, I forget, but, but you, yeah. you're getting out there. So some people have also called you an activist due to mm -hmm. your involvement in campaigns against gmo foods or uh, mercury free amalgam free dentistry would you mm -hmm. agree with that qualification well, absolutely about six or seven years ago i realized that we needed to do more than just provide people with information because there were barriers to them implementing the information so we donate uh, about 20 percent of our net profits to these nonprofit uh, companies that helps uh, make a difference Excellent. and we, we yeah just like in mercury we've been able to actually catalyze the acceleration of the removal of mercury from dentistry mm -hmm. considerably so there's been world health organization treaties that have been signed now to eliminate mercury from dentistry pretty much in most all major countries in the world yeah you know i've been in north america now for over 20 years maybe 21 years and mm -hmm. it's amazing to me that it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not an expert and I haven't followed the field, but th those are just my impressions that that kind of movement in Europe started sort of like maybe in the mid 90s even, mm -hmm. and has actually gained, uh, is a lot more popular and prevalent and predominant, so much so that I honestly don't know anyone in Europe who is uh, <laughs> doing uh, mercury or am amalgam fillings now. Is that correct? I believe so. Uh, so it's just, there's some major challenges in the United States, primarily related to the ADA, the American Dental Association, and 
Yeah, but why? That's what I wanted to ask you. Why? Why do we have that resistance to change here? I mean, the United States no. is supposed to be very technologically inclined, forward-looking society, uh, and then why do we have this resistance to change to something that we know has? I mean, mercury is a neurotoxin, isn't it? Yes, a very potent neurotoxin, one that should need be avoided, and even the EPA. Uh, 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 acknowledges. So the, the answer to your question is really t multiple. Uh, one is the hu human nature, which is essentially uh, part of its, is re really reluctant to admit they've made a mistake. And then there's a liability concern, you know, if, if the ADA admits that they were putting a neurotoxin, uh, which they claim they, to this day, they still don't claim that, then there's potential liability there. So uh, and then the, just human nature, not wanting to admit they're wrong, no matter what it is. It do, doesn't have anything, necessarily have anything to do with health. It could be with politics or <laughs> whatever their position is. I see. I so, and, the, and then the, finally, and, and not so much in this case, because there's not really some big interest, but usually it's large industrial corporations that are have very effective lobbying efforts and right. essentially control with better regulatory agencies. But I, I don't think, I mean, they definitely control the FDA to a certain extent, extent that we've documented that, but it's not as much as we see in other areas, especially like telecommunications and, and EMF exposures. Right. So I would presume some kind of such lobbying effort, but I just can't find an interest that, or, or a group of companies or producers who would have an interest in keeping. Yeah, it it's the amalgam producers. And they, you know, we documented the, that they've funded and supported former uh, FDA commissioners. So then they recuse themselves from making important decisions. And essentially, they just kick the can down the road. So mm, that's so sad. Okay, let me backtrack a little bit and sort of zoom out before we go into all the nitty gritty and the details about mm -hmm. some important things that we need to discuss. Sure. Uh, but first, tell me, what is it, what is this thing called osteopathic medicine and how is it different from general medicine? Well, I'm a physician. Um, I have the same license to practice medicine, prescribe drugs and do surgery as an MD would be in any state. So there's no difference in that. But the reason I chose to go to osteopathic school as opposed to medical school is that philosophically, they were more inclined towards my interest in medicine, which is more looking at the foundational causes of disease. Now, practically, when I went in, turns out there's not much of a difference. And initially, that's the way they started, but they've kind of got corrupted along the way. Um, so sadly, that's the case. But the, the other component, of course, is they, maybe not, of course, but the, there's a real strong emphasis on the, import, uh, on the importance of structural integrity of the body and structure and function so that if your spine is out of alignment, that can cause, uh, can contribute to not only pain, but also uh, visceral or uh, organ dysfunction too. Mm -hmm. So is it fair to say it's a lot more holistic of an approach? I think that would be a good, a good summary, yes. Mm -hmm. And what would be, for example, if you could even go that way to say, what are the, the sort of the benefits and the costs of osteopathy versus general medicine and vice versa, if there's any such thing? Well, I don't think there's a lot of difference. Ultimately, it boils down to the individual position and what their passions are and what their specific training is. So you can have either certification and training, and if, and uh, you know one can be excellent because they they've really studied and done 
significant postgraduate training and learning these principles and applying them. So it really matters what happens after school, not so much what's in school. Mm -hmm. And where does this passion to uh, get involved into medicine uh, and nutrition and sort of improving people's health originate from? Do you come from a family of physicians? Do you come from no. a very poorly health background? Or what was the, the spark, if you will? Well, it's not from a personal health tragedy, that's for sure. Uh, I was really a, a, an interest and a passion in optimizing things. And I was an outlier in medical school. I was uh, looked at quite oddly because I wanted to get people healthy when pretty much everyone there wanted to treat disease. So uh, not that the either model's right or wrong, but you know they had a different perspective than I did. So, uh, and I went into medical school to learn how to do that. Um, so it's just what your motivations are. And you know, I, I, similarly, I, had a, I probably, what preceded my interest in health was my interest in technology. So I've been able to combine those two passions and effectively help people understand some of the basic truths about how to keep themselves healthy without suffering the consequences of exposure to conventional medicine. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking here uh, at your website. Can you share with us what's your mission? Well, it can be summarized in our motto, which is to help people take control of their health. Um, and of course, there's a lot of subtitles to that. And essentially, it's empowering people with the tools and the resources that they need, primarily education, but then we have, we have some other resources that people can avail themselves to, to uh, implement so that they can change their life. They don't have to die prematurely and suffer needlessly. I mean, it just, if you think about it, there's so many people dropping dead from cancer and heart disease and, and almost the vast, vast majority of that is completely unnecessary. Yeah, and speaking of education, let me just make one general sort of uh, remark here and then we can sort of clear that, clear that out of the way and, and jump in there. And so, and this goes like this. Um, we, we are all here in my community, my audience and me hold education and especially self-education at the highest level mm -hmm. of respect. Uh, and that's why my job here is not to tell people what to do or what to eat, but simply to share a diversity of perspectives with them, mm -hmm. uh, often mutually exclusive. And then each one of us should get the education and the capacity as a rational human being to make a choice as to what's the best way to proceed forward, which mm -hmm. is why I bring a diversity of people. Uh, and so uh, it's been a few years now, but I brought uh, originally... Uh, Dave Osprey from sure. Bulletproof Executive. Yeah. Uh, then most recently, as you know, about a month or so ago, I brought Dr. Michael Greger. Mm -hmm. uh, and today I'm bringing you. And it, each of every of one of those occasions, I've been severely criticized for bringing those people, bringing their points of view. But mm -hmm. my point here is not to tell people again what to do, but to share a number of perspectives. Now, I have strong opinions too, but I don't think they're necessarily any better than most other people. So you guys choose for yourself, and which is why um, we have here Dr. Mercola. And by the way, you will discover per perhaps in our course of conversations that while we have some disagreements on certain issues, um, the vast majority of things we, we agree strongly upon. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's, that's very good, I think. But but sure. we learn from people with whom we disagree. Sure, absolutely. No one no one understands the whole picture. Exactly. 
All right. So now this out of the way, let's talk about health. Mm-hmm. What are the biggest impediments to people being healthy today in North America or in the world in general? Two big issues I can think of. One is the food we eat and the other is the toxins that we're exposed to. So with respect to the food, there are some pretty powerful lobbying agents in the food industry that have been able to uh, manipulate federal regulatory agencies to push people in the directions that benefit their long-term profits and not people's long-term health. An example of that would be the last five decades of this low-fat diet myth that has resulted in an epidemic of obesity where we now have 40% in many states and, and close to that and, and others of the people are obese and almost 70% of people overweight. I mean, that's insane. When you think about it, and then we have an epidemic of heart disease and cancer and diabetes. And one of the foundational cores of all those is something we call insulin resistance. The insulin receptor sensitivity is diminished as largely as a result of excessive consumption of processed carbohydrates and bad fats. So, um, when you and and if you do sophisticated even conventional medicine like the CDC will acknowledge that fifty percent one out of two people are insulin resistant. But if you use more sophisticated uh, tests like a, a essentially the oral insulin tolerance test where you give a glucose challenge and then measure insulin levels for four hours, you'll find eighty five percent of the population is insulin resistant. Eighty five percent. So that's, to me, one of the most important physical issues that needs to be addressed to resolve that insulin resistance. And there's, you know, it's relatively easy to do. I've written a number of books about how to do that, effortless healing, fat for fuel. Uh, And there's, I'm sure there's more ways than the ones I've written about it, but, you know, resolve that. I don't care how you do it. It's got to be resolved. And then the toxic exposures, certainly, uh, you know, we've had an epidemic of release of industrial toxins, primarily fat-soluble toxins, and some of them have been banned, but they still persist. Things like DDT and PCBs and mercury into the environment and lead. I mean, look at the the crazy, ridiculous things that happen to lead just because of the influence of the automobile, the oil industry, essentially. And, and they allow, and then they wanted to obviously uh, sell their products. So then they had the cars going and it was knocking. So they, they had to get rid of the knock and they put in lead into the gas. And even though it was known for centuries that it was toxic, they just fabricated things. They dressed it up. They called it ethyl. They, you know, they gave it a woman's name and, and, and essentially made it seem innocuous. And, that, and it's contributed to so much pathology over, over the decades. And it was actually through the actions of a courageous activist, Claire uh, Patterson, who's a man, who died a while ago, but he took a lot of arrows in it. He did some really groundbreaking research to prove that by exploring the lead concentrations in the Arctic ice shelf, that it was a toxin that didn't exist there before they started polluting the environment. So, you know, similarly, it's the same story with going on with so many of these things. But one of the most pervasive, and I believe most pernicious, largely not only because of the pathology that it contributes to, but also because of the massive and uh, suppression of the truth through the telecommunications industry, which literally dwarfs the influence of the pharmaceutical and food industries combined. And people aren't aware of that. They're a very, very powerful industry. 
uh, just to give you one example of that, the lob chief lobbyist for the, farm, the telecommunications is Tom Wheeler, and he was appointed the FCC chairman. And that is an example of the fox guarding the hen house. I don't know what it is. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that they are telling us and and manipulating the data and not and skewing things, even when studies are produced, to say that EMF exposures are safe, and they're not. And they're they're it, even though the World Health Organization electromagnetic radiation. Yes, even though in 19 or 2011, the World Health Organization classified cell phones as a class 2B carcinogen, which means it's probable or possible carcinogen, sorry, possible. But it's sort of a moot issue because it really is a 1A. There's no difference between that and smoking. I mean, they're, they're equally equivalent to carcinogens. And it won't be no, widely known for a number of years decades probably because it takes that long before you see the epidemic of disease and, and smoking case for lung cancer most and heart disease so we're we're, we're 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 and it's silent you don't even know we have big celebrities dying from brain tumors caused by cell phones and and no one even acknowledges it like john mccain the u.s senator just passed away recently it was absolutely related to the cell phone exposure but no one mentions it. So that's just, you know, brain tumors are once. It, it also contributes to infertility, infertility, which is an epidemic of proportions, Alzheimer's disease, uh, premature aging, uh, and heart arrhythmia. So if anyone watching this has a, an atrial arrhythmia, uh, you know, it's the, uh, it's the, one of the things to look at is to radically reduce your EMF exposure because these EMFs, you know, I, I've known they were a problem for decades, but I didn't understand the mechanism. And thankfully, Dr. Martin Paul, P-A-L-L, wrote an article, uh, a study in 2013. I think he could be a candidate for a Nobel Prize for this. But he, but he identified the mechanism, which is related to voltage-gated calcium channels. So and in most of your cells, you have these calcium channels embedded in them, and they essentially regulate the entry of calcium from outside the cell, which is really high, to inside the cell, which is relatively low. And calcium is an important uh, signaling uh, molecule. And when it enters prematurely and in high concentrations and doses, it causes the release of nitric oxide and superoxide, which combine to form one of the most pernicious free radicals. It's not technically a free radical, but it functions like a free radical, which is called perioxynitrite. Have you heard of that? No. Socrates? Okay, yeah. I'm not surprised that you haven't. But if anyone is interested in this topic, there's a really great study, perioxynitrite, or nitric oxide in health and disease, and it's written by Paul Patcher, P-A-C-H-E-R, and all I have to do is type that in Google, and you'll get a link to the PubMed study, which is 140 pages and has 1,400 references. And the reason I mentioned that is it's a landmark paper, and it was written like 10 years ago. But it is literally, I read probably a thousand studies a year or more. And it's one of the best studies I've ever read because it was, it's, you don't have to be, uh, have medical training to understand this, but it, it really addresses the foundational issue that I think contributes to one of our, you know, both our, our passions that we both share, which is longevity, which foundationally focuses on you know, one of the, what is the core of oxidative stress? And I'm sure you're familiar with Denon Harmon's theory, free radical theory of aging, right? Yes, I've heard. And in the 50s, but that really, I mean, it was, it was started us on the right direction. We know there's oxidative stress, but it really, if, if it was true, then, you know, just taking antioxidants would solve things, but it doesn't. It actually, it makes things worse, Yeah. you know? So, you know, 
just uh, it's because it's a non uh, it's an indiscriminate suppressor of free radicals. So let me ask you this then. So yeah. uh, what do we do in this case? I mean, to me personally, from a pure physics point of view, we know mm -hmm. that, let's say, for example, our brains mm -hmm. contain certain kind of molecules. Mm -hmm. uh, and we know that from purely physics point of view, molecules interact with e electromagnetic radiation. Like yeah, there's cool, no yeah. two ways about it, right? And yeah. so if our brain and, and brain tissue is created of, of molecules, it only makes sense that electromagnetic radiation would impact on the tissue. Have some influence, right. Now, now the question is to what degree and how bad it is, right. but, but what what do we do to minimize that? So, for example, what my wife does, and she spends like probably 10 hours on the phone every day or something. Yeah, yeah, else. yeah. She's using a headset. So the idea is keep the phone wired right. headset. Distance is your friend. So keep the phone as far away from the brain as possible. Is that mm -hmm. is that good? And, and if not... No, that's definitely, that's very good. You know, there are better strategies like not use your phone, uh, but... <laughs> But anyway, let me just expand a bit on the reason why the brain is such an important organ. I mean, with respect to EMF, it's not these molecules. It's actually the voltage-gated calcium channels I referenced earlier. And the density of these channels are really highest in neurological tissue, specifically the brain, and in the pacemaker cells of your heart, which is why the heart is so susceptible, and also in the, fertility, uh, the reproduction organs. So those are the three organs that seems to be affected most. So what are the consequences of that? Alzheimer's, dementia, um, in, uh, neuropsychiatric disorders like depression and anxiety, uh, ADD, uh, uh, autism. So these are all conditions that are radically increasing because of the exposure to EMF. So, uh, and I, I want to get back at some point to this, the free radicals, because it's a really a central, important part of helping of, of really understanding the reason why this is so important it's complex it's a bit complex and we've got i'm glad we have the luxury of a little more time to go into some more detail but we can skip over to answer your question now is what can you do so yes distance is your friend put it on cell phone uh, put it on speaker ideally i mean you can use a long cord but speaker phone is free right every phone is a speaker now sometimes you're going to need privacy so then you need the other one but the key that most people mess up on and i, I regularly lecture to you know large groups, and I ask everyone to pull their cell phone, and almost invariably, almost everyone doesn't have it in airplane mode, airplane mode, and they're pulling it out of their pocket. Even And these are sharp people. I mean, I've lectured, lectured some pretty educated audiences, and they don't understand that the last thing you want to do, unless you have some type of emergency, because there's there, you know nothing's written stone, but you never really want to put your phone in, in on your body unless it's in airplane mode. You're causing too much prop, too much... And most people, you know, the men, they put in their suit coat pocket. They got it right over their heart. It's like, what are you doing? Or put in their hip pocket, you know. So you don't want to, that's the first thing you can do. The other is much of the damage is, is uh, enhanced if you're exposed to it while you're resting and repair. So while you're sleeping. So well, a simple thing you can do is turn the Wi-Fi off at night. That's a start. A more aggressive intervention, the one I recommend, is to, to actually get rid of the Wi-Fi and have no Wi-Fi in your house and convert to wired. All you have to do is contact the home theater company. They can come in and run the wires for you. You get some adapters for your notebooks and other devices, and, and then you can avoid the wireless because 
people think that the, the radio, the EMF is coming from outside, but most of it's inside. That, that Wi-Fi router in your house is, is producing about 10 times the EMF exposure than a cell phone tower would be if it was right outside your window. So, and, and they don't realize that they have control. Fortunately, they have control over it. They can, you know, avoid it. So those are the, those are the big ones. And there's many, many, many more that we can go into yeah, great detail. Uh, and we got a little sidetracked here, but, but, and I, so I want to go back to yeah. nutrition, but, but, or start with nutrition. But uh, no. I was reading actually a bunch of studies, which were saying that, you know, guys usually put their laptops on their lap. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then they were doing all those studies where they measure sperm count you know before and after you spend a couple of hours with your laptop on your lap and ever since then you know luckily for me i don't use a laptop but when i do now i usually put like a thick pillow and and i even put like another like i have these mats wooden mats Sure. Put on top of the pillow, so I try to insulate myself. Well, you can you can put some aluminum foil there, which will deflect pretty well. But but the even better is to have an ad- Ethernet adapter in your USB port, and then connect to a wired Ethernet connection, and then uh, and put it in airplane mode. So it's only causing a problem on your lap because it's emitting the EMFs. I mean, there's some there's some EMFs from the battery, but it's pretty low. So the biggest exposure is, is not in airplane mode. And if you have an airplane mode, putting it in your lap is not as much of an issue. And it's funny how, you know, none, none of the manufacturers measure or release any data on the sort of the level well, we of don't, radiation. That we don't have to rely on it. You could, you, th- these devices are relatively inexpensive. You can get a meter uh, that is, uh, the one I, there's many meters, and I have thousands of dollars worth of meters to do these measurements, but the one I like the best, because it's simple and relatively inexpensive, is called Acousticom 2, like acoustic, and then COM 2. You, the only problem is it's really hard to find. It's on Amazon, mm-hmm. and uh, you can, you can get, pick it up for like $150. So and it, measures, it doesn't measure all of them, it just measures the radio frequencies and the important ranges, which is probably the most significant exposure that people have control over. Mm-hmm. So, and it will certainly measure your laptop. So you don't have, it doesn't matter what the manufacturer say. You, you, it's trust, even what they told you what it was, you have to verify, right? You have to independently, objectively assess what, this, what the numbers are. Right, I agree, I agree with that. Now, let's shift back our attention to something which we have a lot more control of perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Just to say our lifestyle and our mm-hmm. nutritional choices. Mm-hmm. Now, first of all, there's whole this discussion, and I want to get this your opinion on this. People have this opinion. So I'm a cyclist, so I bike with a bunch of buddies, mm-hmm. and you know, we bike, we do like eighty or a hundred k, and then we finish at the end of the day, and I see somebody stuffing like four hot dogs, or or stuffing a big pizza, or 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 you know, loading up on alcohol with the pizza and all kinds of stuff. And, and their argument is, look, I just burned like 3,000 calories, okay? It's fine. My body is burning it. So in other words, they're saying if you work out as they are very actively, mm-hmm. then nutrition is not so important or is secondary to working out. So where is the priority ranking between these two? Which is more important, nutrition or exercise? Well, there's no question nutrition is significantly more important. Uh, you've got to, I'm not to diminish the value of exercise. That was one of my initial interests and in why I went into medicine and initially it was through exercise. And we know now some of the mechanisms primarily exercise does so many dark good things, but it, it, 
it, one of the most important th uh, benefits for exercise is it, uh, it, it activates uh, a pathway called PGC1-alpha, which is a subset of a PPA, uh, PPA or gamma and alpha, actually gamma. And uh, what this does, it has a number of functions, but it increases mitochondrial biogenesis. So uh, as our cells become damaged through oxidative stress and improper diet, they become, and mitochondria, they, they become defective. So we have to re replace those and exercise will help do that very effectively. So, but the justification that you, you exercise does allow you a little leeway and that you can get away with a lot more sugar during the time you're exercising because you're, you'll burn it as fuel rather than convert it to fat or oxidative stress. So it won't, it won't raise your insulin levels as high if you do consume when you're exercising. It's not to say it's a great idea, but you can get away with it and not suffer as a result. So, and the, the response that your friends are giving you, um, is probably valid in the short term. It's not going to make a big difference, but over the long term, it depends on what their, their goals are, you know, because it, you, it's hard to argue with someone who has a goal of athletic performance. And there's been studies that show that, that a high percentage of people, if given the choice of taking a drug that would kill them in a few years, but they would get, allow them to win the world championship, they would take it in a heartbeat. <laughs> I mean, that's just human nature, right? They, they, so, but if your goal is longevity and health and decreased risk of disease, then you have different choices that, to optimize that. And so, yeah, they can have the hot dogs and they can have the Coke. Uh, but, the, you know, especially if you're choosing foods that are full of toxins and most processed foods are, they accumulate in your fat cells. And then eventually over time, they'll, they'll contribute to premature aging disease. Yeah, usually the, the cycling popular things are, let's say you stop for a coffee and quite often it comes with like a cake or something yeah. like that when we take a break, right? And the cake is usually, you know, dough and sugar and stuff like that. And it's considered fuel for cyclists, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, the worst thing in that cake, though, is, is really the bad fat they use because almost all pastries are made with processed industrially processed vegetable oils, which are worse than the sugar, far worse than the sugar because they get embedded in your cell membranes. And that's really, they're there for a long time until a cell dies. <laughs> Very good. So, so let's, let's see how we can approach this whole thing. So first of all. Oh, by the way, before you go to the next question, yeah. just a point of re recommendation is to, you may, if indeed you're, and I suspect it is, your, your health is, really important priority for you you may want to reconsider cycling because not that it's not a good exercise but if you're on the road your risk to reward ratio becomes relatively high because you can get hit by a car and kill you can fall off and get traumatic brain injury so there, there's far safer ways to get your exercise but i love cycling you just have, you have to do it in a safe environment yeah, I agree. And I actually have been in a couple of car accidents and which which is why I don't go downtown anymore. I used to go to university for five years every day by bicycle. Mm -hmm. And once a week I would have a near miss scenario. Yeah. And and I was thinking, you know, I've been doing this for four or five years now doing my undergraduate. One day it's not gonna be a new right. and one it doesn't have to be your fault. It could be some knucklehead who didn't sleep all night and was texting and boom, you're dead. Right. And and I ended up with like five stitches in my eyebrow, my front of the bike got pummeled, uh, like, like all kinds of things. And the moral of the story for me in that case was first I'm buying a, a helmet. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Which is a must I discovered. That was many years ago. And of course, that happened right after my conversation with my wife, who at the time was my girlfriend, telling me you never have a helmet. And I was answering like a stubborn European. Look, I grew up on a bicycle. I, we didn't have helmets when I was a kid. I never knew anyone ever having trouble. And of course, the very next day after this conversation, I get into a car accident, like hit by a car. I have five stitches in my eyebrow and then I go and I buy myself the best helmet I can buy. <laughs> Yeah, there are even better helmets that are that are essentially like airbags that inflate, which would help somewhat. But the big problem with falling is not so much the superficial injuries, which repair real easily, but the trauma to the brain, yeah. which can give you massive problems. And you could do these QEEGs that will objectively document where the trauma is. And, you know, there, there are repair strategies you can do, like neurofeedback, but you, it, it definitely messes you up long term. And yeah, I suffered for about maybe somewhere between three and six months with all kinds of post-concussive syndrome issues and uh, strong headaches, sensitivity to light, all kinds of, of problems consequently. It took me like over six months before I was able to sort of get back on track. So I agree with the risks about cycling in general. That Yeah, yeah. Well, just, yeah, just to so see you know. I mean, everyone gets a choice, but you just yeah. it's you know, if you if you're playing the odds, it's not a good odd one to take. Good, good one to choice, I think. I agree, but I just love it too much. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. it's it's magnificent. So now I just try to go in a safe direction if I can yeah. outside of the city and to yeah, yeah. like farm roads and stuff like that. Anyway, so uh, by the way, let me do one last small little digression for sure. my own sort of indulgence, and then we finally jump right in. But you said you've listened to a number of my podcasts. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, how did that happen and why? How did you discover me? What did you find interesting? I was oh, I don't remember. surprised to find that out. Yeah, I don't remember the, the specific details of how I did, but I was intrigued with your, your the, some of your guests. I remember seeing uh, the D-Wave founders that you interviewed and, and some other people. And, you know, I always, I don't think you've been interviewing that many people recently. It seems like you've been on a hiatus. But I, 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 one of the reasons my website so successful is I understood early on the value of RSS feeds, and I still use them. So I, if I find someone interesting, I'll put them in my feed, and then I'll at least look at the first few minutes or something. So I, I listen through to, uh, I would say, two to four hours of podcast a day. Right now, I'm listening to Exponential Medicine from Singular University. They just had that last week, and they put it. I don't have to go there. They put yeah, like 40 hours of video online, so I'm listening to that. So yeah, and every, you know, I, I like your courage and the you know taking all the arrows and and, and you, you know you've done some pretty brave things, and you I, you I really loved your position you took, and you got a lot of flack for it on your about the Singularity University challenges that you threw, gauntlet you threw down to them. I don't think they've done any changes since then, but you know it was really. It's very good. Thank you. Yeah, that cost me a lot uh, in, in a number of different ways, but it was good and I don't regret it. Yeah, I respect you for that. I respect you for that. Thank you. I could have done it better, of course. Now looking back at it, I'm thinking I did a terrible job at the delivery and everything, but I just did the best at the time. So yeah. anyway, so let's talk about the optimum human diet and then potentially all the supplements mm -hmm. and then lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So is there any such thing as optimal human diet? Because many people say, well, look, Nick, you say that the best thing you've done for yourself is to be plant-based for the past three years almost or whatnot, but mm -hmm. it doesn't work for me. And then other people yeah. say, well, for me, the paleo thing works the best. 
Okay, well, I got your point. Here's the issue. Here's the answer. There is, yes, there is an optimum human diet. But you know what? It varies for everyone. <laughs> so it depends. So, yeah, there's some basic principles. I think plant-based is a great start. I, I is If you're exclusively plant-based, I think they can run into some problems. Where, you know, I can mention four or five things why it would be. But normally, I think that's that it's a good strategy. And I'm primarily mostly plant-based, almost all plant-based. And I think, you know, plants are enormously beneficial. But it depends. I mean, I've interviewed Dr. Stephen Gundry, who wrote the book, The Plant Paradox. It discusses all the damage of lectins of people and their contribution to autoimmune disease. So you have to be careful. And how, how do you be careful? Well, you can see what your ge genetics and your meta metabolomics shows. And there are a, a number of different ways you can do that. You can analyze your DNA. And there's a number of companies that do that. And then you can take those results, which only tell you the likelihood that you might have a problem, but that you can integrate it with a test called organic acid test. And I like Great Plains, the urine organic acid test. And you combine those two tests, and then you can see exactly what's going on to see if, in fact, you know, you're deficient in some B vitamins or you have way too much protein. So it really depends. I mean, you get some, get some basic things. You have Everyone has to optimize insulin resistance. No one gets a no one gets a pass on that, you know. But some people can tolerate a lot more carbs than others. So, but in, so you just measure your insulin, you know, and as a as a as a screen, and as, if you're good, and or if you can able to generate ketones, which is another good tool, you know. I think everyone should be metabolically flexible and have the ability to burn fat or or sugar, whichever they need. Most people cannot burn fat effectively; they're impaired. I would say that's probably 85% of the population, which is why they're insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a wide range. There is no perfect diet for everyone. That's impossible. Uh, but I think there's great principles that are apply to almost everyone. Okay, so let's, let's start breaking that down apart. So first of all, what are the most common mistakes mm -hmm. that people uh -huh. screw up on a regular basis on the mass scale? Let's say- Okay, well, you're talking the, about the, the general population, not-, yes. not give me the uh, top three most popular things that people screw up. Probably the, the, the top three, all right, is number one is processed food, number two is processed food, number three is processed food. <laughs> It's that important. Why? Because everything's in there. All the bad things is full of toxins. It's full of denatured, pernicious fats, which get embedded in your membranes, industrially processed fats, high, far too many high, uh, excessive carbohydrates, and they're processed. They're, they're taken away from their fibers. So, you know, it's, the alternative isn't simple or necessarily inexpensive because it does take time, but someone, someone, either you or someone you love or pay, has to prepare the food from scratch. So that is it. You know, you make your own food. And uh, I guess a subset of processed food would be restaurants. You know, maybe that's two or three because people think, you know, you have virtually no control. And I am acknowledging that there are some incredible restaurants that are better than almost anyone can make at home. But those are the rare exception. Almost all of them are terrible. They're using these industrially processed oils. You know, they have to make a profit. So they're, they're, they're intentions to make it tasty and not necessarily nutritionally valuable for you. So minimize it to as much as you can the time that you're eating uh, out at a restaurant or at a conference. I, I was just at a conference last weekend and they, these were really high level, profoundly effective integrated med physicians, but, and they had served lunch, but the lunch was from the hotel and you know they were serving the same darn stuff. So 
you, you, the mis the, here's the other mistake is that if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. It is not a mystery that come you go to this conference at around noon or dinner, you're going to want to eat lunch or dinner, right? Mm -hmm. So no, you know you're going. So you can bring some of your own food. Like in my case, I bring sunflower seed sprouts. I bring canned sardines which are a healthy form of protein. And I don't have the chicken that they serve there for free. I just take out my sardines, you know, and I, and I, I know I have a healthy form of protein and healthy fat. So I think so that's a lack of planning. You yeah. go to this medical conference. I know. It's, lunch. It, Everyone else of your colleagues is eating chicken and you take yeah. out your can of sardines. Oh, I do it all the time. Or I'll go to, uh, you know, a lot of times they'll have these uh, banquets, you know, with some of these fancy events and, and I stop eating after three o'clock or four o'clock in the afternoon. I just, I, 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 okay, here's the other component. Okay, how can I miss? So processed food, restaurants, uh, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And here's the, the other one. The timing of the food is almost all wrong. 90%, it's not just what you eat, it's when you eat. And who is talking about when you eat? Virtually no one, right? So 90% of the public, and this is data uh, uh, popularized by Sachin Panda, who's an investigator at USC. He wrote the book, The Circadian Clock, or Circadian, Your Circadian Code. And 90% um, of the public, of Americans at least, eat outside of a 12-hour window. So they're eating more than 12 hours a day, 90%. I think it's healthy to, com to compress your eating window to six to eight hours, to so have these long periods where you're resting your digestive system and allowing rest and recovery to occur. And really not maximally, but at least mildly stimulating autophagy and activating your stem cells. So when you're eating, one of the worst mistakes you can make is eating right before you go to bed. That is just a absolute, and then forget the food. I don't care if it's all this food on the planet. You shouldn't eat before you go to bed most of the time. Now that conflicts with many people's uh, who are working, they work till five, they get home at six, maybe seven, you know, they have a meal with their family. And I am not diminishing the importance of social connection with your family or friends. I mean, that is key, but you don't have to eat. You can eat earlier and you can like, still stay together and do whatever you would do when you were eating. So I think that's the big one is that people are not paying attention to the timing of their food. Mm -hmm. So, uh, okay. So basically, the, the, the three takeaways were uh, processed food, uh, like sub slash restaurants, right? Like restaurants, for example. Then we have um, uh, the circadian rhythm, uh, rhythm, which is to say the timing of the food. And the idea is to compress it more and more into a shorter period of time so that you have a longer period of time in between the first and the last meal or, or the, between the last meal of the last day and the first meal mm -hmm. of the next day. Right. And what was the second one? Like if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. Right. So, you know, because sardines or whatever it takes to be right. And, and that extends to, you know, okay, I'm going to make a commitment to prepare my own food. Then you've got to figure that out and have the stuff in the refrigerator and, you know, and order it or whatever. So you have everything on hand. Otherwise it's not going to happen. You're going to go to McDonald's. All right. So, so we got that sort of general idea. And, and then let me ask you then about some of the food groups here. And let's talk about the goods mm -hmm. and the bad parts of it. So let's start yeah. with something that you're kind of an expert in, you've written books about and stuff, which is to say fat. Mm -hmm. Which are the bad fats 
And which are the good fats? Which fats should people consume and which fats should people stay? Well, I'll tell you the one that's not an argument. Uh, no one's going to say that industrially processed vegetable oils are good for you. And then trans fat, this would be a subset of that. So though, you, you just should avoid them like the plague. They are there's not to be consumed. No and, and even there's a confusion on this, even with uh, health liter- the people literate in health would be perceived healthy oils like flaxseed oil. So when I lecture, I usually ask who's got flaxseed oil at home. Then I ask them to think of a friend or relative they don't like and give it to them because it's a processed oil. Even though it's a healthy oil, it's still processed. So when it's first processed, it's healthy. But the, through time, it's, it's highly perishable and oxidizes and becomes essentially rancid. And you do not want to consume that. So you can have flaxseed oil, but you consume it in the whole seed. So you soak your seeds overnight, put them in your smoothie, and you're good to go. And it's less expensive and it's much healthier for you. So those are the health, you know, so those are the bad fats. Um, and then an excess of omega, you know, most, most of the, the, the essential fats are omega-6 and omega-3. Uh, but it's, even though they're essential, it's almost, it's really, really hard. You almost have to be an IV parenteral nutrition to become deficient in omega-6 because it's so pervasive in our environment. It's, it's like impossible, almost impossible to get deficient on. So really the, the primary ones we get deficient on are omega-3s. And so that would be things like flaxseed oil or, or hemp or chia, which is an ALA omega-3. And then higher uh, uh, carbon fats, which would be EPA and DHA. And those are marine oils typically. You can get from algae or fish or, or seafood essentially. Creole and sardines. Krill and sardines are, are two ones that I, I particularly like. I don't eat a lot of sardines unless I'm traveling. So, um, okay. So we kind of talked about uh, a little bit about some of the bad fats and some of the good fats. Give me some more examples. Uh, and for example, uh, well, we didn't talk, we talked about the bad fats. We didn't talk about the good fats yet. Right. Go ahead. So, so tell us about those. Well, the, there is controversy about saturated fat, the, but there isn't controversy about the non-saturated fat, the monos and the omega-3. So those would be things like the marine oils and then flax, omega-3s. So uh, those are good. Uh, so other healthy fats that I think are useful are uh, like coconut oil, which would be a saturated fat, but it's a short chain, it's medium chain actually. Um, and then avocados, nuts, seeds. I like macadamia nuts the best because they're the highest in fat, the low, lowest in protein, lowest in carbs. So pretty nutrient dense from that perspective. And they're, they're actually the primary fatty acid in macadamia nuts is oleic acid, which is the same thing in olive oil. Now, olive oil has some other benefits that macadamia nuts doesn't, but it's still, that's the primary fat. So it's a, it's a monounsaturated fat, mm-hmm. omega-9. Um, and, uh, you know, so those are the primary ones, seeds, nuts. Let me share with you part of sort of my experience, because uh, as you may be aware, about two and a half to three years ago, a little less than three years, I transitioned to a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Sort of like I'm doing it sort of the scientific method. Every five or six months, I go and I do a full blood profile. I do a bunch of tests and we see where we are. And then I have a nutritionist and we do a bunch of changes and 
you know, it's not like I got it right. It's not that I got it right now. All mm -hmm. I can say is that right now my blood picture looks better than it's been for the last 15 or 20 years, but it's not perfect yet, but it's better than it's ever been. Now, but here's what happened with me. So I sort of became plant-based uh, cold turkey, like overnight. We just opened up the fridge with my wife one day, gave away all the cheese, the butter, the meat, everything we had there, and we became plant-based. And we will talk about some of the dangers that you would foresee with things like that and supplementations and so on a little later. But what happened was my cholesterol started exploding after I became vegan or plant-based. And I could not figure it out for the longest time. So basically, instead, I stopped eating butter, milk, cheese, uh, which I used to eat tons of meat, all those things, and yet my cholesterol started exploding, exactly the opposite of what I would have presumed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what the hell is going wrong? And it turns out, or at least in my case, what ha was happening was, I was loading everything with coconut oil. Mm -hmm. So I would cook everything in coconut oil, I would make myself a shake, well, once a day, and I would put a, a general spoonful of coconut oil and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. and the moment I actually removed the coconut oil completely, first my cholesterol dropped very substantially, and then on the next test, it was already in the normal range. Yeah. All right. So with respect to your experience with coconut oil, um, the, I think there's some confusion because you're relying on total cholesterol as a reflection of an increased risk for heart disease, and it's not, even though a lot of people think it is. It's a mistake. So you have to look at the at the fractions, like the HDL, the cholesterol ratio, the triglyceride to HDL ratio, the small particle size for the LDLs. Those now those numbers got worse, and they very well could have. I'm not saying they didn't, but you can't look at total. Triglycerides particularly went really bad. Okay, so that's 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 typically a good sign that it was going in the wrong direction because triglycerides are a simple way to analyze the the scenario without they doing more sophisticated. They were worse that we've ever measured. Okay, yeah, how hard they get like a, a thousand or? Well, I have the numbers here in my computer. I forget, but uh, and also, by the way, it turns out I was watching. We in Canada have a little bit different uh, measurement of cholesterol than you guys in the states, for some reason. So here it's measured like up to a scale of six or something. And then we break it down in triglycerides and uh, HDL, LDL, uh, and then uh, sort of permanent cholesterol or something. I forget what the other one is called, but it's on a measure of six. And in the States, isn't it like a hundred and some units or something like 140 or below or above or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So they use different units. Right, so we measure it differently in Canada. As okay, it all right. Well, we won't go there. But so the thing is, coconut oil is notorious for raising cholesterol, and sometimes that's useful. Like my, in my case, I have like four ounces of co coconut oil a day because my cholesterol is too low. It, it typically runs about 110, 120. So I can get up to 130, 140 with four ounces of cholesterol. So again, it, the, the earlier answer was you need to optimize the diet for yourself individually. So in your case, that was not a good choice. So you, you know, there is no right or wrong answer. And, eat that, and that, you were still eating plant-based. That was not animal fat, that was plant-based fat. Yeah, but you know, in your case, it was not a good fat for you. 
Yeah, and I was proud. Or you had too much. You had too much of it. Yeah, I had too much of it, and I, I actually removed it completely. And after that, and now it's been all into the normal range. My triglycerides have dropped. My doctor was shocked that I was able to do that. I have a seventy-eight-year-old doctor who thinks he can never learn anything ever again. He thinks he's seen everything yeah. for the last fifty years, sixty years, and and he was telling me this is never going to change with your diet only and this and that. And when my numbers started dropping and then eventually went into the normal range, he was like, wow, this is really impressive. And you're sure you haven't taken any statins or anything? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, sadly, uh, that's the rule rather than the exception. Most physicians don't really crack open a book to learn new things after they graduate and finish, take their last uh, certification exam, uh, which is sad commentary, but that's the reality. So. Right. So anyway, so it goes to your point that not, you know, there's no one sort of silver bullet for all of us, perhaps, even if it's plant-based and also goes to go to go into the direction to say that even if it's a plant-based fat, it doesn't necessarily make it good because mm -hmm. it could be processed plant-based, very bad, or in my case, coconut oil was also pretty bad. So now tell me, what are the so-called good animal-based fats in your view? Well, again, it's the same situation, whether it's a plant or animal, it's sort of a mood issue. Uh, I think you, I don't think animal-based fat is necessarily a requirement. It's mostly the animal proteins that some people need and not necessarily large amounts. And it doesn't have to be meat. It could be fish and could be eggs, you know, but I mean, there's, that have some sources of uh, not only phosphatidylcholine, but uh, which eggs is the, the biggest nutritional source of, and that's a really important nutrient that most people are deficient in, especially plant-based people. Um, but uh, vitamin B12, I mean, that, so that's one that's typically in animal food. So, and, it, and I don't know the concentrations in different meats, but if you're a menstruating woman, then iron would be an issue. Uh, it isn't for men, it's actually the counter. So one of the benefits of a, being an adult, of a plant-based and an adult male is that you can lower your iron levels and iron is really a pernicious risk factor that's stealth that virtually no physicians understand or appreciate. You know, and it and increases oxidative stress. The interesting thing is that my iron actually went up since I went vegan. Uh, and it's very, very optimally perfect right now. Uh, we've measured it over time and that's another thing which my doctor got surprised because basically his thing when he found out that I'm going to be plant-based, he said, you're going to be iron deficient, calcium deficient, protein deficient. No, no, it for you. Very soon. <laughs> no, 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 that's just not true. So, uh, but he, again, they didn't measure the right, do the right test to measure iron sufficiency. So that, that is called ferritin, F-E-R-R-I-T-I-N. And I think that the units are the same in Canada as it is in the U.S. And it should be lower than 40 nanograms per deciliter, I believe, is the, is the unit. And uh, most men are over 100, and that's problematic, and that will increase oxidative stress. So the same genetic disease I have that lowers my cholesterol actually increases my iron risk, so, or iron level. So... I have to be particularly watchful of that. And I'm able to keep my ferritin levels under 40. So that's what you have to measure. And then you can also measure oxidative stress. And you probably know this already with uh, high sensitivity CRP protein. Right, right. You can measure DNA damage with 2-deoxyguanosine. I think 2-DA, 
Uh, that's not, maybe not the correct term, but it's a DNA marker of uh, oxidative damage. Mm -hmm. So, um, so let me ask you this then: that what's your take on this whole plant-based um, sort of lifestyle, which seems to be exploding everywhere right now? Some people say it's the fastest-growing social movement. So, putting uh, the ethical and the social issues to the side, which are very important, actually. Mm -hmm. Let's put them to the side. Look at it from purely health point of view. Is it possible or is it not possible to remain healthy uh, on a plant-based diet? Well, it depends what your definition of plant-based is. Is it exclusively plant with no animal foods at all? Yeah. So vegan you're talking about. Pretty much, yeah. Not a vegetarian. Vegan meaning whole plant-based, no cheese, no egg, no milk, no butter. No fish. Okay, so I don't think it is. I think it's impossible, physiologically impossible. Uh, I can with Y supplementation, you can you can circumvent that. So things like B12, carnosine, uh, phosphatidylcholine, uh, those would be some of the main ones. So you, you have to address the deficiencies, and you know again, it doesn't really matter as long as you're you, you're assessing your individual profile. So you can measure these levels you can do use tools like chronometer.com c-r-o-n-o-m-e-t-r-e-r.com it's free you can enter your foods in and see where your levels come up you, you know it's this is well documented so it's not rocket science really you, there are certain nutrients you need and if you're not getting them regularly from the food you eat it's a problem now what people who aren't eating plant-based they they have to go in the opposite direction they're they're certain they essentially have overnutrition and the wrong food. They have a surplus of calories and not getting the micronutrients that they need. But plant-based people tend not to have that. They tend have to be relatively low in protein, which I think is healthy. If you're just relying on plants for plants are relatively protein, less protein dense than animal foods, a lot less protein dense, which I think is a good thing, as I said, most, because most people over protein. So then what are the sort of the most common dangers that, that people like me who are committed to a plant-based diet are going to face? You mentioned B12. Uh, yeah. What else? Carnosine would be another one. And then, uh, which is uh, a nutrient you need for muscle growth. And then also uh, phosphatidylcholine is typically deficient in, in vegans. And that's a really important nutrients need to process uh, toxins out of your liver and pass them into the bile uh, and has a wide variety of other uh, needs for your body. And typically, especially if you're doing strength training or, or you eat a lot of fat, your needs are going to be increased. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I eat a lot of avocados and a lot of nuts and things like that's that. That's good, but those don't, those don't have B12, carnosine, or phosphatidylcholine. Right. B12 originates in algae, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's in a form that's not absorbed very well. For, fortunately, that's an easy thing to, to resolve. I mean, literally, it's really inexpensive and it's simple to do. And not, there's non-vegan B12 supplements. So. I do supplement with B12. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, neurodegenerative disease from B12 deficiency is a reality. And people go blind, can go blind from that. So Right. We measure. We measure my B12 yeah. every time I do. And, right. and it's not optimum yet. It's good. But so my doctor is happy with it. My nutritionist is not. She says that the doctor's measure is way too low. Uh, I'd probably believe your nutritionist. Yeah. And so she says she wants to get it a lot more optimized. Yeah. Uh, so I've increased actually as of recently my dosage of B12 supplementation. But isn't that the case also for meat eaters? It's, I think that also meat eaters generally 
suffer from low B12 on average? Well, they can, and it depends if they have a genetic SNP for it too. And because and, B12 is connected with folate, not folic acid necessarily. So if you have a SNP for that, it can be problematic, but it's not, doesn't necessarily mean that the answer is to throw on lots of methylfolate and methyl B12, which is the better form of B12 rather than cyanocobalamin. So um, you have to measure and you have to look at it. <laughs> you can't guess. Right, absolutely. And, and the other two things that you mentioned, what are the sources or the origins of those substances? Because I admit I'm not familiar with them. For phosphatidylcholine? Yes. Well, it's mostly animal-based foods. So the largest one in the American diet would be egg yolks, not egg whites, but egg yolks, which has quite a bit, actually. Three egg yolks a day would probably be sufficient. You know, I, I'd encourage you to seriously reconsider adding some fish and egg, eggs into your diet, which, you know, I mean, they obviously have to be high quality and very small fish. And the eggs would have to be produced by chickens who were raised ethically and, you know, and not abused and given bad food. So, uh, and that's easy, relatively easy to do. You can even grow them yourself, you know. So, but that would, that would probably be enough to compensate for all the nutritional deficiencies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I see. Um, and, and, and so it's like a pescatarian, essentially. Uh, you know, those are the only things you need. You never have to eat meat. I mean, you can get away without eating meat and still be very, very healthy, as long as you have a little bit of animal protein because and animal fat. So the fat, the, the, the key animal fat would be the one in egg yolk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you could, you, the butter has some benefits too. It has vitamin A. Vitamin A can be a problem uh, in vegetarians. Uh, because it's a fat-soluble vitamin. It's not made in plants. Beta-carotene is, and your body converts it, but the conversion rate is relatively maybe inadequate to have high, high uh, or healthy concentrations of retinol or vitamin A. Mm -hmm. Okay, so because I personally subjectively feel myself that I'm better than I've been in many years. I'm sure you are, yeah. How, how could I measure scientifically perhaps what would be the symptoms those substances you say or, or mm -hmm. what's b12 the measure that i'm deficient no so b12 i measure i know about yeah. all of that i'm supplementing yeah carnosine I'd, I'd have to look it up because you know i normally don't uh you know have these types of extensive arguments so i just know that's an issue in phosph i think you can measure phosphatidylcholine or you can measure choline levels you could take choline as a supplement but i think it's better to take phosphatidylcholine um so as I think that probably the best test for you is, and I can get, make a recommendation for a clinician to review the results with you, would be the Great Plains Urine Organic Acid Test and uh, combined with the genomic, genomic evaluation. So in understanding your, your SNPs and your predispositions and then looking what your specific metabolism is doing can, give, can be a great insight, especially if you combine it with a detox panel. They measure like about 120 different common toxin exposures. It's a simple test. You just restrict some supplements for a few days and um, urinate into a jar and mail it in. You know, it's not nothing crazy, not terribly inexpensive, but not overly outrageous. It's, I think it's under a thousand. So wow. even both of those, you know, let, let me ask you this, cause you mentioned the SNPs. Um, I've done my 23 and me. Yeah. You could use that data. You can send it in. They can use that. So you don't have to repeat that test. Yeah, for those who haven't done 23andMe, I wouldn't recommend it because uh, privacy is a big issue nowadays, as I'm sure you're well aware of. And once you do 23andMe, you're not private, unless you give them a, an alias name and 
information so they can't connect it to you because they sell it to the drug companies and all that. That's why they're able to subsidize their tents. They, My understanding is that they, because I interviewed. I know they they have a privacy policy now, but if you didn't sign it before, it was sold. <laughs> yeah, I did mine many years ago. Yeah, so you, your data is in a lot of drug companies. Guess what they're doing? They're gender, gendering data for industry. So it's a it's a clever model, actually, pretty clever. But you know, you you lose your privacy as a consequence. All right. So so let me see. Uh, what about the single or best food that we cannot all eat is there any such thing and, and if there's one or two foods like that what would you recommend no it's just the same issue with a single best i can name really healthy foods uh but there's no single best food i, I think eggs are actually pretty high up there i like uh, uh krill oil or uh, as a source of healthy nutrition because this is really it, it is actually even higher in phosphatidylcholine half of krill oil is phospholipids and the other is EPA and DHA, which you need, but it's in a form that is particularly well absorbed and penetrates in the brain. And Rhonda Patrick, who's a really good bio biological scientist, just recently wrote a paper how that's particularly useful protecting those who have APOE4 allele, which is an increased risk for Alzheimer's. So I like krill oil, I like chlorella. I take about 10 grams of chlorella a day, fermented chlorella that we, we provide. Uh, because it's full of chlorophyll and uh, and can actually help the, some of the proteins in there can bind to toxins like mercury. So it's good for helping you excrete metals. Uh, so th I think that's a, and it's, and it does, actually I chew it, it doesn't taste that bad. It tastes pretty good, I like it. <laughs> makes, makes your teeth green a bit, for, but it's, it's, it's helpful. So and that's, that's vegan based, of course, chlor chlorella, it's a little algae. Mm -hmm. uh, so some, those are some of the better ones. Uh, and, and then sprouts. I think sprouts are massive. I'm, I'm really focusing on phytochemicals now. And I'm looking at a lot of the cruciferous sprouts that are high in glycos or glucosinolates. And uh, when you eat them or you take uh, an enzyme called myrosinase, it converts the glucosinolate to an isothiocyanate like sulforaphan that has been, you know, this massively important properties that radically reduces inflammation. It's really useful to get rid of malignant cancer cells. So I, I have a seed smoothie that I actually sprout about a dozen different seeds for five days. Mm -hmm. And then at day five or six or seven, I'll, I'll put it up in my Nutribull and add a bunch of other nutrients. And so I, I pretty much, and I, you know, I'm, I, on straight training days, I'll use a little whey protein, but other than that, it's pretty much all plant-based. And I, I like the, it's hard to big build muscles, although I know a lot of people will provide examples of vegan bodybuilders, and I know they exist. But that's not the case for most people, uh, because you really need like the branch chain amino acids to serve as a substrate to activate the pathways to build muscles. And there's not really they're not really high in plant based foods. So weight happens to be one of the highest and you, or you could take a supplement like branch chain amino acids or leucine, isoleucine and valine. So mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, and so let me ask you about uh, a couple of uh, supplements, per perhaps, and you can tell me whether they sure. would be good ideas or not. And then we'll move on to a little bit to longevity rather than just sure. Care. So, what about things like uh, vitamin D, for example? Should we be supplementing with that? Well, you probably should. I have not taken vitamin D for over ten years, maybe twelve years now. I live in Florida and I make sure that I'm outside, uh, you know, for a substantial amount of time. And I just had my blood tested 
last week and it was 70, 70 nanograms per ml do you, per deciliter, no, per ml. And uh, the, your units are different, so it'd be 2.5. So that would be like 150, 160 in your unit system. So the ideal way to get, we could talk for an hour about this, but the ideal way is to get it from the sun, not from a pill because you get other benefits when you expose your skin to the sun, such as UVA, which causes the release of nitric oxide. And, and then 40% of the sun rays are near infrared. You can activate your mitochondrial cytochromes, at least two of them, to uh, produce, become more efficient at producing ATP when you're exposed in near infrared and the sun's the least expensive way to do it. So you can get it for free. I don't think you should pay for vitamin D, although it's an inexpensive supplement, but if you, for whatever reason, it chose to live in a frigid, climate really far north like you have, then that's a problem and you're gonna need probably the lesser of two evils of vitamin D. But vitamin D is just a marker for sun exposure. That's why when you read these epidemiological studies that show all these benefits such as reduced autoimmunity diseases like type one diabetes, multiple sclerosis, uh, decreased cancer risk, it's not because the people were necessarily taking high levels of vitamin D supplements, it's because they were getting sun exposure that caused it to go up. So is catalyzing all these beneficial biological changes. So, but you'll get some benefit clearly by taking vitamin D. So you want to keep it in healthy levels to, for sure, vitamin D. Mm -hmm. But, what but try to get the sun. <laughs> I, I do my best, you know. I, yeah, I know. Monitor our system here, the way it works is like vitamin D is one of those that I actually have to pay for, for whatever reason to test. And yeah, I'm that's great. I'm actually paying for it. Uh, and How much do you charge you? How much do you charge you? I think it was $60. Okay, yeah, that's a reasonable rate, yeah. Something like that, maybe $55, $60. But, yeah. but mine was not optimal. Mine was like just a little bit above the minimum, which kind of shocked me because- Well, it depends on what their levels are because most of them are using the wrong reference ranges. They're not, they're normal reference ranges, not healthy reference ranges. So, right, exactly. you know, you really, you the, the American one, it should be between 60 and 80. And if you, your units, you have to multiply that by 2.5. So that would be 130 to uh, whatever. Yeah, just do the, do the math. Uh, so, uh, and, the, and it usually requires about 8,000 units of vitamin D. That's the only source of vitamin D. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have this, this kind of ongoing thing. My doctor, everything that's not off the chart of the normal range for him is fine. Whereas then when I, when I go to my nutritionist, anyway, she looks at it and she's like, that's fine because it means it's not out of the range but it's not fine because you're just above it so that's not fine you need right yeah you, you need to stop seeing your doctor although you end up at, yeah we really or find a new one uh he really he doesn't get it i mean there are integrated physicians in canada although it may be a bit of a challenge uh He's, yeah, I know a number of Canadian physicians. So. He's a good guy, actually. And the good thing about him is that he's semi-retired and he lets me test for everything that I ever Okay, well, that's fine. So, as long as you're in control. I've outsourced all those decisions to me and to my nutritionist. And basically okay, good. To good. Him and I say, can I please get such and such? Okay, good. As long as he's not <laughs> putting you in dangerous territory, that's good. Right. So, okay. So, let's talk a little bit about uh, perhaps uh, life extension. Uh, and, and some of the things that we can or, or we could or we shouldn't do on that topic. Now, a particular subset of my audience, for example, I, I, are not, I know are practicing uh, intermittent fasting or, or even fasting in general for a more prolonged period of times. What's mm -hmm. your take on intermittent fasting and or longer term fasting, like spending several days, maybe even up to a week in some cases, yeah. with respect to 
health and especially longevity? Well, excellent question. In fact, I wrote a book about that. I just put in the draft for it two weeks ago. So it will be published in May. It's called Keto Fast. I think it's the best one out there. And it's really a hybrid from a different models. I used to believe at this time last year that long-term or multiple day water fasting was one of the most profoundly beneficial metabolic things you can do for your body. And why? Because it does some really great things. It increases autophagy, which is essentially Latin for or Greek for self-eating. So it destroys these subcellular parts that are damaged and are clogging up the system essentially. So it gets rid of those. Then it activates your stem cells, which is also useful. But what I didn't understand is that when you are, and no one should do water fast unless they are intermittent fasting for about a month, because you have that will, if you intermittent fast for a month, you know, compress your window down to six to eight hours, then you'll probably be metabolically flexible. Although you can test by measuring your ketones as long as they're above 0.5 millimoles. And Keto Mojo is probably the best way to do that because the strips are only a dollar. Keto, K-E-T-O, Mojo, M-O-J-O. Um, and the downside that I didn't appreciate is that when you fast, you are burning fat. It's a process called lipolysis. And guess what's stored in your fat? Fat-soluble toxins, which are released. So many of the side effects that people notice, and I've done multiple, maybe four or five, five-day water fasts. So it's not like I'm, I haven't tried it and I'm not speaking from experience. So let me just be specific in yeah. defining. When you say water fast, you mean that for five days, all you have is water. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think that's helping now. And I've done it five times. So I've been, you know, and I'll tell you why, because most people are going to experience side effects, although I didn't really have any, although I think I lost too much weight um, and I don't have a lot of weight to lose. So, which is potentially problematic. So you can't do that extended periods of time. You can only do it a few times a year when you're way at your ideal weight or a little lower. So that's one issue. So the benefits that you're going to get, these autophagy and stem cell activations are going to be limited because you can't do it that frequently. But if you do a partial fast, you could do that like once or twice a week. So, and then if you focus on supplying your, pay attention to the, important components of detoxification, which is supplying the nutrients your body needs to process those released fat soluble toxins to deliver, can make them water soluble and then, then further modify them so they can be easily excreted by the body. Then it becomes a easier process and less problematic for your body you can actually excrete these toxins rather than resorbing them. So I think that it's a hybrid of the fasting mimicking diet work that Walter Longo has done out of USC He's published a lot. He's probably the most prolific researcher on this, but I don't particularly care for his product that he sells, which is Prolon, uh, which is a prepackaged system that it costs $50 a day, $50 a day to do. And it's you know, the food probably costs maybe 25 or 50 cents. Um, so you can do it yourself for a lot of expensive and, and you probably would get benefit of five days, but the partial fast, I think it's easier to do and safer. But if you, I, I set uh, or focused on a, a basically a 42 hour fast. And that essentially you're, you're fast, intermittent fasting for six or eight, for, to compress eating went up six to eight hours. So you're, for 18 hours, you're not eating. So you say you stop eating at three o'clock in the afternoon and you start again at nine. So you've done that for a month. And at nine o'clock on one day, your partial fasting day, you have like three to 600 calories, depending on how big you are. So for someone like me, it's 600, maybe 700 calories. And then I won't eat again for 24 hours. So in 42 hours, I've only eaten 600 calories. 
and I'll typically lose five, six pounds. And I definitely am burning fat. My ketones go through the roof. And those, that's when I do my detox protocol, which involves near, near, not far, near infrared sauna and uh, some binders and variety of other nutrients to facilitate the uh, excretion of these toxins. So what's the bottom line of this? Does fasting, is intermittent fasting better? Is it long-term fasting that's better? No, I think you need both. I think you need both. I think the base, the base is, is intermittent fasting. I, I'm convinced I probably am wrong, but my current position is that most people would benefit from intermittent fasting. Now, I thought, I believe that long-term hours. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought chronic ketosis was useful too. So, you know, ketosis, ketogenic diet, but I'm convinced that's unhealthy that once you are able to become metabolically flexible, that you need to regularly increase the amount of carbohydrates and protein so that you're cycling in and out, not continuous ketosis. So the same way, I think you can cycle in and out of, of, uh, Part of fasting. And it's interesting, you see your weight drop and then come back up, drop it. It's kind of like heart rate variability where you don't want the same heart rate all the time, right? You don't want the same weight all the time. You want to be able to fluctuate back and forth. I think that the, val the value in cycling that probably pro provides some powerful biological rejuvenation mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me get this straight here. You said that you don't think that strict ongoing keto diet, whether it's in the sort of paleo sense or whether in, in the sort of plant sense doesn't is, matter is good it's bad. for the long term I, I mean there might be some exceptions to that but I think for the vast majority of people it's problematic and dangerous and I would not recommend or advise what's that. the danger what's the problem with that well there's a number of them you can lose too much weight and you you actually see it said earlier 85% of people are insulin resistant well you can become overly insulin sensitive. In other words, your insulin levels become so low that you actually, there's this paradox that occurs that you need insulin actually to stop the liver from making sugar. Because if your insulin level is too low, it doesn't stop it. So here, what, so what does that mean? That means if, you, if you're chronic ketosis, your insulin level could theoretically go too low that, and then what happens is that you're, even though you're eating like no carbohydrates or less than 20 grams a day, your blood sugar starts to rise because your liver's making it. And here's the paradox. So you think, oh, I've got to reduce my blood, my carbohydrates even more. No, you have a piece of fruit, an orange or a healthy fruit and all, and you know, maybe 20, 50, 70 grams of carbohydrates, boom, your blood sugar drops because you stim stimulate insulin. Insulin's high. It shuts the liver production or gluconeogenesis is called of glucose so that it goes down. So that's one issue. And it's only one. There's many hormonal problems. You can develop thyroid dysfunction, hypothyroidism. You know, it's just, that's why you want to cycle in and out. I think you, you get sarcopenic, you can lose muscle mass. I mean, not, you know, I'm sure there are some exceptions to this and I'm sure there's people watching this who can say that they are it, but I think the long-term over the, you know, cause this has been studied for a long-term. I mean, is keto has been going on for 80 years, but it's primarily in uh, seizure disorder, kids with seizure disorders. So the general population has been doing that long, maybe just a you know, few years at most. Mm -hmm. What in your view are the best either uh, food related or supplement related ways to promote longevity? 
different question. Uh, so I think it's cyclical ketogenesis, you know, cycling in and out with a partial fast once or twice a week. Uh, and having lots of good, healthy plants and seeds. Uh, I've uh, written a, a, my book, as I said, is Keto Fast, but there was a chapter I, that was too long and couldn't be fit into there. So if your readers want, or viewers would like a copy of that chapter, I'm happy to send it to them. All I have to do is send an email to media at mercola.com. And uh, this chapter is still not done yet, so I'm not sure when it'll be completed, uh, especially with the holidays coming up. But, you know, in that book, I go into about 20 different seeds and, you know, there's like four or 500 references on this. And most of the references are within the last few years. So it's a lot of work went into this and help people understand the value of these seeds and what the specific phytonutrients that are in there and, and all the, the biological benefits that they have. So I'm a big believer in seeds, but not just swallow the seeds or crush them up. I mean, to sprout them and actually have a living food. You know, so I think that if you talk about superfoods, sprouts are another superfood, but not just sunflower seed sprouts, but you know, a whole variety. And I, I actually took training at Hippocrates Health Institute, which is plant-based. And that's where I learned how to sprout sunflower seeds. And they tend not to go into the seeds in the sprouting as much as mostly uh, like sunflower seeds and, and uh, wheatgrass, but mostly beans, you know, so those are the other primary ones. And I'm not sure that legume sprouts are as healthy. Although, although I will have some mung bean sprouts too. Um, but so sprouts, you know, and sprouts have these, all these powerful phytochemicals in there that can supply your liver with the nutrients they need to break down or metabolize those fat soluble toxins when you're partial fasting so that you can excrete them out of your body. Because, you know, we've never, I mean, partial fasting, I mean, we did it, just by chance because we didn't have access to food 24 7 100 200 years ago like we do now so it was part of our regular bio our, our regular lifestyle and by we didn't have to plan it but now we can eat continuously our whole lives you know it's it's possible and easy actually and convenient and is there any, sort of interesting do you have a pet um she died about a year ago Okay, and what was dog or cat? Yorkshire Terrier. Okay, cancer. Well, she had a number of strokes in the end. Okay, well, so cardiovascular disease. So you know, most of us kill our pets not intentionally, and I'll tell you how. Because guess what? Just like you, your pets need to fast. So once a week or so, they will not like you for this. But once a week, or you do not feed them, because you're going to activate the same biological mechanisms in your pets as you will in you. So that's why I mean, the number one cause of death in pets is cancer. I mean, it's large, large part of that is the, the food that they're fed. I mean, they're almost all pet food. is like more than half sugar if you look at it. So that's not, they were never designed to eat that. But, but still, they're eating it continuously, just like most humans eat continuously. So you run into these same metabolic complications. You know, and that's why we have this epidemic of these neurodegenerative diseases, cardiovascular diseases, and cancer. Yeah, she was 17 and a half and uh, the yeah. first stroke. That's pretty good for, for, for a dog. Yeah, she was pretty, pretty old and she had sarcopenia very developed, like she was really less than four pounds in the end. Yeah. Anyway, um, okay, uh, are there any drugs or smart drugs that you promote or that you have experimented with or are following in any way or are interested in? No, I, I, I follow them. I, I'm not interested in any of them. I'm not a big fan of taking uh, 
uh, drug. I mean, a lot of people in the longevity community use metformin, which I think can be emulated by berberine. I would not take metformin. Metformin has some downsides, as I think it impairs vitamin B12 metabolism, and it also can poison the mitochondria. So any t- there's the, this is the law of unintended consequences, and that's exactly what happens when you take a drug. So yeah, there are some beneficial things, and it. it stimulates AMP kinase, AMK, AMPK, uh, but so does berberine, and it's a natural product, so it has to have a lot less of the side effects. So I take berberine on a pretty regular basis. Uh, for smart drugs, I was just at this conference last week, and I didn't realize it, but there's this nutrient called acetyl L or acetyl or acetyl L carnitine, uh, not L carnitine, but acetyl L carnitine. So that uh, nutrient taken at about two to two and a half grams a day has done unbelievable wonders. There's a lot of Italian research on it. So I've started, I was taking some, but I was probably only taking like 500 milligrams. So I bumped it up to like two and a half grams a day. Uh, and you know, I hope to see some of the improvement that is being done. But I, I, I think fish oil is another one, you know, not the fish oil, but omega-3 fats, because I, I don't believe that fish oil is useful for most people because it's an ethyl ester and it's not as absorbed as well and has a lot of potential problems. I mean, if you take it in massive doses and especially if you have some of the, a sufficient phosphatidylcholine and phospholipids, you can pass it through there. But it doesn't, it's not the right constituent to be absorbed effectively by your body. So that's a credible way to improve brain health. But I, I like the phospholipid forms of um, marine oils. So the problem with algae oil, which would probably is what you're taking, is that it's the ethyl ester form. So it does, it's not absorbed as well. So you need really large doses of it. And I think that's only DHA. I don't think there's any algae EPA, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I could be incorrect on in it, but I think it's primarily DHA. What about resveratrol? It's a natural substance. Yeah. Well, yeah, resveratrol is useful. There's a little bit of controversy about that. It, uh, what is its primary benefit? It's, it's uh, perceived to stimulate CERT1, CERT1. And uh, interestingly, though, CERT1, I mean, you could stimulate it to the max. It will not work if you're NAD deficient. I okay. Think that researcher got caught like fabricating people. Yeah, yeah, David Sinclair. There was like a big scandal. Around. Yeah, and then it's not really well absorbed. Uh, resveratrol, you, there are higher versions or more well absorbed versions, like methylated versions, like terostilbene, that is better absorbed. So there, I, it's it's not unreasonable. But what I do is I just take the like grape seeds, you know, crunch them up, put them in a powder, and I swallow those. That's the original thing. So. You know, again, seeds, right? There's the because who knows? There's probably other phytonutrients that are going to be useful that haven't even yet been discovered. So, uh, but NAD gets back to the EMF because I was talking about how that per, uh, perioxynitrate gets generated, and when that happens, it actually causes break. It the perioxynitrate breaks up the DNA, causes damage, and and the, the your body fortunately has systems to repair that. Uh, the primary one is called PARP or polyADP ribose polymerase. But guess what? PARP is a, a radical consumer, and most people is the major way that we lose NAD. So if you have a lot of EMF, EMF exposure, your, your NAD levels are going in a, t- in a tank or in the toilet. And then your CERT2ins don't work well because there's not enough NAD to fuel them. They just, it does, you need the whole system working. So it's it, you got to look at the whole picture, not just one isolated component and think swallow resveratrol and you think it's going to be the answer. It's not. There's a lot, 
you know, I've been studying longevity for a while now, and I'm particularly, I'm currently fascinated with senolytics. Are you familiar with, with senescent cells and the removal of them? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, depending whether, like, you qualify Dr. Aubrey de Bray in that vein, in, in that yeah. case, absolutely, yes. Well, so, so let's, what's a senescent cell? Senescent cell is a cell that is old and damaged. Not necessarily old, but it's damaged. Uh, typically, the DNA is uh, oxidized or broken apart. And as a result, it stops reproducing. And we've known that for a long time, but I just recently appreciated the fact that the, that, that is actually a helpful strategy for your body. Because why? You see, why would that be useful? Because guess what? It's the way that your body prevents cancer from going crazy. It stops the cell from reproducing. Yay, right? So that it stops cancer. And obviously, obviously it's not effective in everyone, but it's one of the ways that your body has to stop cancer. It makes senescent cells. But they clog up your system and, if, and, and they make these inflammatory cytokines that go in and just increases chronic inflammation in your body, which is just a disaster. So there, there, there are drugs. Actually, quercetin is not a drug. It's a, it's a, a flavonoid. It's one of the most common flavonoids that people eat. Uh, but they're combining with, I think that's a, that a snib or I forget it, another dr a drug that they're, they're using and studying as a senolytic, which is a chemical that removes these senescent cells. But there's a really great researcher. Her name is uh, Judith Campisi, I think. And she saw it at California. And I was just reading one of her papers that was just published last month. And uh, that she was looking at this. I had never heard of it before. It uh, uh, is a polyphenol from Indian long peppers. It's called Piper longum. Uh, let me just see what that name of that, that uh, no, it's called Piper long, longumin, Piper longumin. And she did this study that showed that it um, actually uh, activates OXR1. I think that's the name of it. I could, could have the, the, the acronym wrong, but essentially it's a pathway that causes uh, that normally this, inhi it, it, this inhibits the production of um, beneficial uh, antioxidants that your body makes, like SOD and catalase, but inhibits it. So it actually, we th this, this, she's showing that when you stop the inhibition, it increases in the, actually the oxidative stress because normally, uh, you know, these, these, uh, Senescent cells are loaded with these cytokines. They're exposed to all the ox oxidative stress that they persist because they have the protective mechanism, the OXR1. So when you did this, they give the uh, individuals these types of phytonutrients, they can actually cause the senescent cells to explode and die, you know, and get get picked up by autophagy. So, uh, so it's pretty incredible. So that that's one. Fisetin is another uh, polyphenol that's being looked at as a as a natural. Uh, a senolytic, and it's in strawberries primarily, but it's also in the peels of apple, maybe even higher concentrations. So I'm looking at getting some of those Indian long peppers, and I've I'm already taking apple peels. I've got a lot of organic apple peels I use in my diet. So I like to keep it natural. So those are the you know because this removing senescent cells from your body is a really important strategy, and it's just emerging as an, a, an important topic in some of the longevity circles. And then also optimizing your NAD levels, which I do with uh, some precursors. Absolutely. I agree completely. What about stuff like some people would maybe even call it a little bit in the woo-woo range, like meditation? In, 
Oh, no, it's not. It's not in the woo-woo at all. It's a very effective, powerful thing. Unfortunately, I, I'm, I'm going to probably start again. I'm use, I used an app called Muse and Calm, M-U-S-E, Little Heaven. They just, was, I will just was one of the highlights I got from watching Exponential Medicine in 2018, this last few, two weeks, uh, is they, one, they, they, they actually launched or announced a new Muse band. So it has some other sensors that measures... Uh, heart rate and breathing rate and some other uh, interesting things. So the, I'm looking forward to getting that device. I'm probably going to start meditating. But it, it's profoundly effective benefits. It's a form of neurofeedback training. It lowers your heart rate. There's a lot of good studies. And what and one of the the, the scientists they had presented exponential medicine was, was uh, sharing some data on how it actually improved uh, longevity and functioning, so which I was unaware of, and it's probably and I'm probably sharing that information inaccurately, but it was an interesting presentation. Yeah, there's a researcher somewhere. I think I forget whether he's in the University of Washington or something like that, who's been having access for decades to the Dalai Lama and some of his best monks, and he has some absolutely fascinating, amazing research. Mm -hmm. uh, fMRI and all kinds of other research and i'm it's he's on my wish list actually of people to interview uh to talk about the actual science the scientific proof that there's so much benefit to this um okay so we've been talking here for probably well over an hour by now maybe an hour coming up on two <laughs> 15 minutes we, we had some some interruptions yeah technical difficulties right but yeah technical difficulties too but let's say an hour and a half so let me see in the sort of closing period here in yeah. our conversation is there something that i should have asked you and that i didn't ask you something that's very important be it for health be it for longevity or something else that you want to share with yeah I, well, I, what i didn't have a chance to go back into was this form of what what is causing all this oxidative stress that's free contributing to the yeah. yeah the free radical theory because it's really that's not a and then it, the free radical theory from Harmon converted to the mitochondrial theory of aging, which I think is more accurate because most of the oxidative stress is generated within the mitochondria. And it was thought for the longest time, certainly when I went to med school and even up until the early 2000s, uh, that the biggest contributor to rea free radical damage is hydroxyl free radical. You're familiar with that, right? You know, first you go to, to uh, uh, per, per, uh, no, wait, um, superoxide, then you go to hydroxyl free radical, then you or hydrogen peroxide, then hydroxyl free radical. But the reason, and, and it's very, there's no question it's a pernicious free radical, but the, the paper that I mentioned earlier by Paul about perioxynitrite goes into this in great detail, but the superoxide, I mean, the hydroxyl free radical is very, very short-lived. It only lasts like a billionth of a second. That means the consequence of that is it can't travel very far. So when it's generated in the mitochondria, it essentially cannot travel outside the mitochondria. It can't. And so it's only going to damage the mitochondria, which is a problem. But, uh, and actually one of the reasons why you want to eat cyclically ketogenic because you're having too many carbs and you're not able to have that metabolic flexibility, that's sort of dirty fuel and you're going to increase the oxidative stress and mitochondrial damage. So, the, but the, here's the issue. That perioxynitrate that's formed with EMF, that lasts 9 billion times longer than hydroxyl free radical. can easily uh, transfer out of the mitochondria into the cytoplasm and into the nucleus and cause damage to the DNA. It could go back and forth and go between cells. It, it, it's, it's so flexible. Wow. So that's why that's an issue. That's why 
most of the stress, the oxidative stress is likely related to these reactive nitrogen species like, sorry about that. So that is a big issue. So that's why it's so important to really address the EMF components. And one of the best, I mean, we really could talk about it for three hours. And I talk a lot of it on my site at Mercola.com. But if there's a book, if you want to just pick something up, it's the EMF, the non-tinfoil guide, non-tinfoil head guide to EMF by Nick, Nicholas, who's a Canadian. I think he's out of Montreal. Uh, so that's a really good book. And it can kind of give you a shortcut on that. But, it, it, you know, you you don't want to drive your car with with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake, right? Not a good for your engine or for every and your brake. So you want to ideally take the foot off the gas, which is like minimize your EMF exposure so that you, you know, your biology is working and functioning well. And then the other beneficial things you're doing can be really healthy. I see. Very well. So uh, what would be kind of the best place for other people to find more about you and your work? The best place to reach me is Mercola.com, M-E-R-C-O-L-A.com. We have a daily newsletter. And if you wanted to get that free chapter, you can write me at media at Mercola.com. And whenever I finish it, we'll send you a copy. But it should, it's right now it's 100 pages and 400 references. And I think it might be double that by the time I finish. I don't know. I mean, it's almost a book. But I'm happy to share it with those who are interested because I think it will give you some really good value and giving your body the nutrition it needs to fight these chronic degenerative diseases. Fantastic. Dr. Mercola, we had a very wide-ranging conversation with you today for over an hour and a half, perhaps. What would be the final message, the most important thing that you want to send us away with? Okay. Well, it's just the model of our side is that you can take control of your health. If you're watching this, you probably know that already, but just to hopefully catalyze and inspire you that you have that and not to rely on physicians or the conventional medical system and challenge them. Thank God we have the resource of the internet that can, you can independently uh, access this. You can use PubMed and almost half the articles are free in PubMed. So you can you know, get a pretty good idea of what's going on and get a consensus and not listen to anyone who's believing them they have the, the, the view of the truth. So research it yourself, which is what I do. So you don't believe anything I say, go to the literature, you know, and talk to some of the experts. You know, I try to summarize that for you to speed up the process because not all, all of us have the luxury. Like, I, that's the only thing I do for the most part, and that's my passion. So I'm able to provide the information and share what I learn. But do it yourself, if there, especially if a specific problem, you know, real health challenge. So don't rely on it. And, you know, and even though the entire conventional medical field and the public health authorities are telling you something, it may not be true. You know, really evaluate it very carefully because your life may depend on it. Dr. Mercola, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, you're most welcome. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes or you can simply make a donation.